Well, last week we finished, as I said just a few moments ago, Amos's virtual preaching tour. Now, it's possible that maybe he was doing some traveling, maybe in some of these locations, but more likely than not, he was in maybe Bethel or Samaria when he was preaching these sermons. And he had harsh things to say about the countries surrounding Israel and Judah, which is where he was from. But then he landed on those two nations that were formerly one, used to be united Israel, but now they're Judah and Israel. And these are God's chosen people, the one that he has called from darkness into his marvelous light. But he had even harsher words to say towards God's people. And we might ask, along with Israel, why? Well, while these people were called by God to represent his holiness to the nations, they had instead become just like the nations around them. They were called out to be different and distinct, and they had become identical in every moral, ethical, economic, religious way to these people. And you remember exactly how God did call them out. Not only did he rescue them supernaturally and miraculously from the slavery of Egypt and delivered them from all the tribes of Canaan, but he also forged with them a law, a covenant into which they were to live, that they fully agreed to live into this covenant. And these commands that, that God placed on them in this law and in this covenant was to, to worship and love God alone. That's the first and primary thing he called them to do. And that's at the center of what they were supposed to do. And if they did that properly, if they did that correctly, that would also play out by their being fair and equitable and compassionate to all the people they lived with. So if if you get the worship of God right, then that means that you live decently and ethically and morally with the people around you. Now, if one of those things gets out of sort, what that tells you is that they're both out of sort, really. So if you say that you worship God, you go to church all the time, um, you have perfect attendance, you're, you, know, you give some money to the church, but you don't live ethically with your neighbors, then the point that Amos would have us to know is that you're not really worshiping God well. And vice versa is you could be you know, getting along with your neighbors just fine, doing all the things they're doing, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're worshiping God according to the way he calls us to worship him. So the problem with Judah and Israel that was exposed in Amos 2 last week is that they were identical to the pagans in this twofold way. First, they were idolaters. They were not worshiping the Lord alone. In Bethel, which is one of the places that Amos um, uh, confronts, and it's there, it's kind of a southern city, and the nation of Israel that has a temple to rival Jerusalem's temple, and they have a, uh, a golden calf in there. Now, they call the golden calf Yahweh. They do say that, at least. But they worship him according to these pagan practices. So the biggest problems, the biggest problem right off the bat is that these people are idolaters. They pay lip service to the Lord, but then they actually adopt the values of the false gods and even the demons of the, the religions around them. So that's their first problem. But secondly, not only were they idolaters, but this was causing them to be unjust. Last week, we talked honestly about how they would oppress needy people, how the wealthy would, would uh, manipulate people, that they would throw them into debt slavery for something, uh, some mild 
uh, loan. It was like a pair of sandals that they could throw them into prison for years. Terrible treatment. How that they would be sexually debaucherous. They would take advantage of young, vulnerable people and all manner of violence. And so they were thoroughly idolatrous, one, and secondly, that was causing them to be unjust. And so last week we saw how God is described as a lion roaring in anger at his people. They're supposed to be the chosen ones, but instead they'd become lecherous swindlers and thugs like all the people that they like to um, denounce outside of their borders. They were selling each other's labor for pennies. They were abusing the bodies of the needy for just a moment of pleasure. And so God, through Amos, declared war, not just on Israel, but on her marketplaces, on her military. Nothing, he told them, would save them from his coming judgment. None of the things that they found security or reliability in would stop his coming judgment. All corrupt merchants, judges, priests, community leaders, whoever would be exposed for who they were, really were, and at best case scenario, they would flee naked and penniless before a righteous God. That's how chapter two ends. And now for the next few weeks, we're going to hear again why exactly God is so angry with these people and how far they've fallen short of his covenant. And we'll also get a glimpse of how God plans to punish this kind of apostasy, which means falling away from the faith and their cold-heartedness towards one another. And he'll do this by using some metaphors that are easily recognizable. He'll get them to see, using their own rationality, their own ethics, their own logic, to show that they understand the consequences of their actions. They just don't care about those consequences. And so he'll show that by using um, uh, uh, metaphors for uh, travel, for community, for hunting, for uh, um, harvesting, all those things. He will show through their common sense, daily, regular life, how they're not living out the way that they know they should live. And so if Israel insists on acting so beastly, so inhuman, God will show them that he'll meet them with a beastly death. And that's what's on the table. So let's look at these first eight verses particularly and discuss them together. Chapter three is Amos trying to persuade Israel that God means business. That these are just, or these are not just empty threats and that their impending punishment is really coming. So now remember, this is the, the this is the Israel we're encountering at this point in history. They may de- be divided. Judah and Israel have split into two, but they're under Jeroboam II, who was a mighty king and did things that were very politically popular. He was able to expand the borders of Israel. He was able to expand um, their economic sway, their military sway, all the things that we like in a good leader. But the problem is that the scriptures identify him as a um, deeply sinful man, not obeying the Lord at all. So although he's expanding and doing things that look like a blessing to the nation, what he's really doing is just incurring more guilt on Israel. So Israel is a strong nation at this time. Their economy is booming, their military is powerful, and they are so proud of their national identity and culture. They think they are the pinnacle of society. They look at themselves that way. 
But God shows that really they're just a bunch of selfish children that are rebellious, not only in word and deed, but even in their thought life. And the scary and sad reality about Israel is that they refuse to believe a word of what Amos or any of the other prophets say to them. So when God sends preachers to guide them back to his covenant, to not even invent something new, not to be innovative religious people, just to say, we need to get back to the scriptures. We need to get back to what God would have us to do. They totally disregard him, totally disregard him. And so God's people are revealed to be completely hard-hearted. And what they really go on to show is that they have excuses for all the ways they're sinning against God and their neighbors. All the ways that their economic and sexual oppression just really isn't that bad. After all, they might justify to themselves, all the other nations have these slave markets, all these other nations uh, charge exorbitant interest on their people, all the other uh, nations get people into debt slavery and break up families. All the other nations do that. And they think because that they're still going to church in Bethel, that that means that they're really being faithful to God. Never mind, again, that they're worshiping a literal golden calf, an actual idol, who they've named the Lord. It'd be as crazy if we wheeled in a, a, a statue of a Greek god in here and said, this is Jesus. That'd be offensive and blasphemous to us. That's the exact same thing these people are doing. And they think they can do it and get away with it because what they think is that we're God's chosen people. God values us above any of the other nations so we can do whatever makes us happy. That's the logic going on in their minds. See, Israel, they really believe that the only possible way to interpret the political freedom they had, the financial prosperity, the sort of social stability they had, the only way they could interpret that is that God must be pleased with us since we're doing so well. But in reality, their abuses of these things is the very reason why God is so outraged at them and is about to send punishment. And if they were to listen carefully, if they were really to listen to Amos, they could see that God has been displeased with this the whole time. If they were really to return to the scriptures, they could see clear as day that God's not just a fickle monster that just decides one minute to bless people and then curse them the next, but that they have been violating his statutes and ordinances from the get-go. How could he possibly bless them? If they're doing well, it's only because of the grace and forbearance of God and bringing destruction on people that they're doing well. And so, although we don't hear Israel's response, Amos doesn't record what they think of his sermons in chapter 1 and 2, where God announces war on all these evil nations, including Judah and Israel. We get the sense that Israel downright disbelieves him and his calls to repentance, because they don't do anything about it. And he has to continue on denouncing these half-truths they believe here in verses 1 and 2. See, they rightly believe one thing. They are God's chosen people. That is true of Israel. God did select them. From all the nations of the world, he came and chose Israel. But if they're careful readers of their scripture, 
God chose them not because they were brave or powerful or smart or talented or successful. He chose them because he chose them. He wanted to love them because he wanted to love them. In fact, their, their puniness, their pitifulness is what made him choose them so he could bring glory to himself and goodness to a people that really needed it. See, that's what they ought to be thinking about. And so they wrongly believe that God chose them because they were somehow special or important. And because that, then everything was always going to work out in their favor. But Amos preaches a very different understanding of God's election of Israel here. Yes, Israel is a chosen nation, but being a chosen nation means that they have a sacred responsibility. God chose them so that they would be obedient to his word. Think with me back in uh, Genesis, when God first approaches Abraham. He goes to this pagan man that he finds in the nation of what would one day become Babylon. So from the, from the most evil place on earth at that point. He goes and finds Abram and Sarai and calls them out of that home to go to a new land and to establish a new people. God's going to do a work through them. And he summarizes, we read in Genesis 12, they are to be a kingdom of priests, meaning they are to be a collective of God's representatives to the world, and a holy nation set apart from what all the other nations do. That's what God's word is to Abraham in Genesis. That's the purpose of Israel being the chosen people. That's why he chose them. And while God does say in Genesis 17 that Israel is to live in my presence and be devout, so I will establish my covenant between me and you and multiply you greatly. That's the blessing that God intends for Israel. That if they live in his presence, if they're devoted to him, he will greatly enlarge and enrich and be a blessing to the whole world through them. That's why he calls Israel. But at the end, that's the beginning of the, uh, of, of the books of Moses. We read that in Genesis 12, early in the story. But you get towards the end of Moses' books over in Deuteronomy 28. And God warns the people through Moses this. He says, but if you do not obey the Lord your God by carefully following his commands and statutes that I am giving you today, all of these curses will come and overtake you. And he lists a long, stark list of the ways in which Israel will incur curse on themselves if they're disobedient. And guess what Israel ends up choosing to do? Guess which path between being obedient and following the Lord and being devout and doing their own thing and not listening to the Lord? Guess which way they choose? Well, we know the story. We know that they choose to live for themselves and they do exactly opposite of what God calls them to do. They're not only not with God in his presence, they're living facing away from him, facing other idols, trying to shove him to the the back of their collective memory. And they're facing themselves towards idols. And not only are they not devoted to the Lord, but they're deceiving themselves by being debaucherous and, and worshiping their own pleasure and flesh and all these things. 
And so the God that we read about that brought them out of the land of Egypt here in, in verse 1 and 2, the one that um, made a mockery of all of Egypt's wealth and military and power and false gods, the same God that, that brought them through all the trials of Canaan, showing that no nation with any of its might or money could do anything to stop the purposes of the Lord, that God that has shown himself more powerful than any nation or, or any economy or, or, or any army or anything like that and has, has chosen to love a pitiful people like Israel, they have decided to be just like those people whom God defeated. And so God says he's going to punish Israel because they've decided to be like the other nations. He's going to punish them because of the iniquities that they have Um, gotten themselves caught up in. All the things that we've read about in chapter 1. Israel has devolved into the very people that used to oppress them. See, all throughout God's law, and you probably remember this from reading the Old Testament, how often did you read, you will not do this to another person. Remember, you used to be a slave. You used to be poor. You used to have nothing. Nobody loved you. You won't do that to anybody else. He says that all throughout the first five books of the Bible, and yet they end up being just like those people. Israel has embraced the very sins that God delivered them out from. In the beginning of Exodus, we, we, we read that God heard the cries of his people. He knew what they were going through. He heard their cries of oppression. And he decided to rescue them out of that. And that's the very kind of lifestyle that they're turning back to. And so, true to his word, God is going to punish and curse Israel because of how they've broken his covenant. Now, I want to pause here for a second to think about this, Maranatha. It's popular in American evangelical churches like ours to look at the suffering of our society and blame everything on the people outside of the church. We're going through the mess we're in today because of these people hate God, they won't follow his law, they don't do all that. But if we look at the wisdom of the scriptures, if we take a book like Amos seriously and try to put his metric, his assessment of how God looks at the world... We ought to start with being critical of ourselves first as God's people before we start criticizing everybody else in the world. By the end of this chapter, God says, you people in Ashdod and you people in Egypt, both of you are pagans and evil. You come here and bear witness to how Israel is evil. God may, for American Christianity, call all the people that we think are outside of the church they may bear witness to how we failed as the church. He'll use, the, he'll use our enemies as his servants. Now, he's a just God. He'll deal with them in their own time. Paul even talks about that. God will deal with the outsider. He'll judge the outsider, but he's going to deal with you first, church. What if we viewed our failure to worship God in spirit and in truth and our failure to love our neighbors as ourself as the most egregious crime in America today? What if, as American Christians, that was our concern? 
not with policing the ethics of people that don't believe in God. I heard a, a pastor say recently, and it was, it was rather a rather brilliant uh, realization. He was preaching through um, the Sermon on the Mount. And he gets to that point, and I think it's Matthew chapter 5, where he talks about how Jesus talks about lust, and he talks about sexuality, and that's an important and critical topic that we need to talk about. And he says, but Christians get it wrong because immediately they impose this, 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 uh, this way of living, this kingdom lifestyle on people that don't even believe Jesus is the king. So we get all hot, high and mighty, all hot and bothered about people that don't believe that Jesus is king. And we're going to judge them and get and nasty with them because they don't follow him. And so they don't follow his rules. And yet we won't bring Jesus to him, to, to them. We want to start by saying you're wrong and you're evil for doing these things. But that's the wrong end of the stick to pass them. We need to talk about how loving and Jesus, loving and merciful Jesus is towards sinners. How he loves people that have no interest in living in his kingdom way. Introduce them to Jesus first. And then let them come to know him through him revealing himself to them. Then you can tell them how they ought to conduct themselves as Christians. But the church isn't interested in that. We like to... Bully people because you don't live in this way that I don't even live into. But I'm going to say that you don't do it worse than me, so I don't actually have to be holy or obedient myself. See how the Phariseeism that creeps into our hearts that way? When we say, uh, when we get mad at people who live with other people or, 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 or do these kind of things or, or have these unethical or immoral lifestyles. We want to bully and push them around because it makes us feel better about the ways in which we're not being obedient. But as Christians, we ought to realize the only reason that we see God for who he is is just like with Israel, he came to them in their despair and saved them. He came to us when we knew Nothing. When we didn't know any better, when we were enemies of God and he loved us. That's how we ought to treat other people. Come as friends, not come as enemies, not come and debating all the time. And goodness gracious, these Christian pastors that want to just debate and argue and fight all the time. That's not the way that Jesus handles sinners. He comes and loves them. You know how Jesus handles religious people like us? By lighting a fire under our rear. And saying, and, and saying, you don't even, you say you're supposed to be believers of this scripture and you don't know this or the power of God, he says to scribes and Pharisees. See, through, God, through the preaching of Amos, blames Israel for, as the greatest failure in the world. He doesn't look at all the other nations and say, they're doing all these terrible things, and they are, and blame them. He blames Israel for not being the missionaries they ought to be. And so American Christians, when we begin to prize our worldly possessions, our money, our property, our comfort, our freedom, whatever, when we begin to prize that stuff, and it's so easy to do, above worshiping God and above a loving witness, not only through gospel proclamations, but through acts of mercy and charity, 
It may just mean, according to Amos, that the suffering we're going through is our own fault and that God is trying to warn us about that. Amos is exposing Israel's wrong-headed belief that as long as they just say the word God or say the word Yahweh or whatever, that that somehow means anything and they can live as wickedly as they want to. But God holds Israel accountable for their sins. His election and choosing of them as a nation isn't a get-out-of-hell-free card. Rather, it is a summons to them to be obedient in their worship and their witness, to be light and salt. That is, those are things that, that, that uh, illuminate, that give people a path and preserves and, and fights the corruption of the world. Is it possible that God wants churches in America to stop believing the lie that as long as we pay lip service to Jesus, we can get away with any action or attitude that we want? Do you think the Lord might be trying to slap us awake right now about how we've let money or nationality or denominationalism or whatever prejudices or abuse become more precious to us than loving God and loving one another? I sincerely believe most of the problems we're experiencing in American Christianity today are because of our own sinfulness and selfishness, not because of outside persecution or because we're suffering for Jesus. I think we're suffering for sin, by and large. And this is the exact kind of message that Amos is saying to Israel, and they are having none of it. They are the authors, in his view, of their own disaster and demise. Because they use God's sovereignty, they use God's grace as a shield to do whatever they want, as an excuse to sin however they can. But look how Amos disabuses them of that notion in verses 3 through 8. He lays out a series of metaphors here that seem kind of strange to us, but he's just what he's really trying to do here is trying to use questions or, 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 or things that would be obvious to them in their day. So verse 3, he's asking the question whether or not people can walk on the same road unless they agree or at peace. And so what he's suggesting here, in other words, in, in days where you would publicly travel on this, um, on this road and go in caravans and stuff like that, are you going to end up walking in a group of people that are, are your enemies? No, if they're from another religion or social class or something like that, you'll find another group to walk with. You, you don't go and go anywhere and travel together on foot or on donkey with people that you don't agree with. That's obvious. So he asked him that question. Do people that aren't at peace with one another walk on public roads together? No, they know that. Verse 4. If a lion roars or a young lion comes out of its hiding... Um, before their prey is caught, will they catch their prey? No. Do they do that? No. Again, lions don't roar until they've caught the prey. Young lions don't come out of their hiding place, out of their den, um, brazenly, until they've caught the thing that they're looking for. Otherwise, they'll give, it a, they'll give their presence away and the thing will escape. Again, the answer is an obvious no here. And then he asks again, if a bird, will a bird land in a trap if there's no bait? 
No, it'll have no reason to go. And will attract spring if there's nothing there to trigger it. Again, for the third time, the answer is no. The point of all these questions is to get them to just see that they understand that actions and consequences, that that these are all commonplace things in their day, and he's trying to get them to see that they can still understand logic. Now, if God refuses to walk with Israel, if he is roaring at them like a lion, and if there is a trap being laid for them, if they understand that all of those things mean that these people are not at peace, that somebody is hunting somebody else. So if they understand that God's disposition towards them is as an enemy or as a lion, if they can understand that, how do they not understand that God's about to visit disaster on them? See, he shows that they can, they can use logic to ascertain truth, but they have no interest in the truth that's being proclaimed. So what is Amos getting at here? He's trying to get them... Uh, to see what's coming their way. If, if God is um, seemingly against them, then they're not going to prosper like they think they will. So they see the effect or the consequence of action. And so then in these next few verses, he, uh, he reverses the order. He reverses his course there and, and, and asks uh, what the consequences will be for these actions that he's about to to speak about. So in verse 6a, he asks, for instance, hypothetically, if a watchman sounds the alarm, if he blows a ram's horn, meaning that he sees in the distance that there's an invading army, will the people sit on their hands and feet or will they start to make preparations? They'll make preparations. Only an idiot, Amos is trying to indicate to them, won't start preparing for battle. And then he doubles down on this metaphor. In verse 6b, he says, if disaster comes upon that well-prepared city like Bethel or Samaria, doesn't that indicate that the Lord ultimately caused it? Again, they would believe in their way of thinking, yeah, that, the, that even if they don't worship God alone, they believe that gods are, have power, and they sure ought to believe that their God is sovereign over battles and warfare. So what he's saying here is if they understand that actions have consequences and they understand that these are warning signs, then why in the world, in verse 7, will they not heed Amos the prophet who is blowing a ram's horn and spiritually speaking say, the Lord is about to visit disaster on you. They understand the warning signs for bad news And that God will ultimately allow disaster to befall a people, even maybe set it into motion. That's happening right now, and yet they're ignoring Amos. The Lion of Judah is roaring, meaning that his prey, Israel, is already in his claws. Because a lion doesn't roar until it's got its prey. It'll scare it away. God is descending on Israel now, and they still refuse to fear him. See, in all this, Amos is trying to get them to wake up and smell the coffee that's already on the burner. He's not making this stuff up. The signs of their society in decay or in turmoil are as clear as day. God is angry with Israel because they don't fear him and they don't obey his commands 
to be good and compassionate to one another. And the worst part is, the worst part is if they really knew this God they say they worship, that if they would just turn to him with repentance and with a contrite heart, he would instantly forgive and restore them. That's how easy it is to get on God's good side. He says, just come to me. Come to me. And it'll be water under the bridge. That's all. They don't need to, they don't need to go. And uh, God himself in the Old Testament says, I require uh, mercy, not sacrifice. God's heart is for people. He's for their flourishing, for their benefit. He doesn't put all these hoops for them to jump through in repenting and restoring them. But they're so arrogant, so selfish, so caught up in their own insanity. They'd literally rather be destroyed than be obedient. You know, at the, at the risk of, of, of saying something uncomfortable, I, I think even in, in the world we live in today, where there is a, a, an enemy out there that's interested in killing all of us. And it's a new virus that's in this world. We all know people that have been fatally wounded or brought down. There is such a spirit of arrogance in this country about this disease. And especially in churches. Let me tell you right off the bat. There is no good reason for you to become a part of a church because a pastor can say that if you give money here and if you join our church, I will write a religious exemption for you, which means that this disease can't affect you. That's arrogance. That's people thinking that their nationality or their status as a Christian means disaster can't befall them. How many hundreds of thousands of people do we have to see die before we show some humility and say, we're not in control of this little pathogen? The arrogance, not just in in our nation, that's one thing. The arrogance in the church about this is astounding. It's astounding. We have been so deceived by our life of relative ease and comfort that we are just like ancient Israel. We're God's chosen people. He loves American Christians. No bad thing could ever befall us. We'll even construct whole end times theologies to say God will come and rescue us from all suffering because he wouldn't let Christians go through that. As if to ignore every other country on earth that's Christians who have been Christians longer than this country has even been around have been suffering martyrdom and persecution and, and because we think we're somehow special, God will rescue us from any pain or suffering. Well, I guess he doesn't care about the Thomas Christians in India. I guess he doesn't care about the Coptic Christians that are getting their heads sawed off, getting their churches bombed. But we're American Christians. He loves and prizes us more. Have we gotten so used to our leisure, so used to being able to take advantage of people and being remorseless hypocrites in our Christianity that we can't see the clear signs that God is trying to wake us up out of our selfish days? 
God is patient, but he won't wait for his people forever to respond. Before he even gives Israel a chance to respond, he pushes ahead. He answers for them. And he calls, again, Ashdod in Egypt, you come bear witnesses. You princes and you, you powers, come bear witnesses of, about Israel. You people, come from your citadels and, and come to the mountain of Samaria, and I'm going to show you the charge that I bring against my people in verses 9 and 10. Look at the turmoil in your city. Look at how you use money and sex and violence to oppress one another. Who is at fault here? Does God blame the pagans? Does he blame the immigrants or the foreigners? Or does he blame the own people and his, and his kingdom? Or the, the, the people in the, the kingdom of Israel that are powerful and could do something to love God and love one another, but instead hide away in their big, expensive houses where God says you are totally incapable of doing the right thing. And while they've been unleashing violence and destruction on the people that need them the most, God says, I'm storing up that same violence and destruction for you. You've been remorselessly evil. The Lord promises in verse 11 that an enemy is about to surround you. Your land will be taken, your strongholds will be destroyed, and your homes will be plundered. Just like you've been doing to your own next door neighbors. Israel is about to get a taste of their own medicine. But Amos is preaching to these people, hoping that they will listen and repent. See, if you hear the voice of the Lord, what's that psalm say? Don't be like the people at Meribah that harden their hearts. Repent. Turn to him today. That's why Amos is preaching. He's trying to rescue these people. That's why pastors have to preach. Preachers have to preach in this country today. He's trying to rescue people out of the mess that we've gotten ourselves in. And folks, if you think what we've heard so far is bad, verse 12 is going to shock you to your core. In ancient Israel, it was impossible for a shepherd to protect a large flock from every predator. Now, if they were good at their job, there would be a minimal loss of life. But at times, a lion or a wolf or a bear might snatch a sheep away and devour it. They could try to rescue them, they could try to fight them off, but more often than not, the best strategy is to let that one go and herd the rest away. But a lot of these shepherds were like hired hands. Jesus talks about that. You know, the hired hands don't really care about the flock. If there's a big enough wolf, they might just run away because they'd rather be alive than have a few gold coins in their pocket. So in order for the owner of the flock to know that when he sent out 100 sheep and he only comes back with 98, to know that this shepherd isn't going off and selling them to somebody else, he would need proof sometimes that those sheep didn't make it. And the shepherd would have to herd the sheep away and then present the remainder of the sheep's corpse to the owner as proof. So look at what verse 12 says again here. As the shepherd snatches two legs or a piece of an ear 
Not an ear snatches a piece of an ear from the lion's mouth. So the Israelites who live in Samaria, they'll be rescued in the same way with the corner of a bed or the cushion of a couch. Now here's the shocking thing that I believe Amos is doing. Some people think that this means they'll be rescued in the nick of time. I think Amos is using a bit of dark and twisted irony here. Amos is saying that, oh yeah, Israel's going to be saved just like that bloody sheep corpse is going to be saved. In other words, it's not going to be saved. That that, that shepherd, after that lion has finished devouring that sheep, will bring back a couple of its legs and a piece of its ear and said, this is all there is left. And you know what Israel's going to look like if they don't repent? All they're going to have left is some scavengers are going to come and find their bloody couch cushions and their shredded up blankets and say, this is all there is left of Israel. The people that loved their leisure, the people that loved their wealth, all there is left is their blood stains and guts on the things they love to sit on. You talk about serious judgment. Folks, the Lord is not playing games with his people. If his people won't act right, if we won't end up loving our neighbors more than we do our couches and televisions, we might expect the same kind of disaster to to befall us. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says to a, a, a troubled church that those that won't repent of their immorality around sex and money, let Satan have them. Let Satan destroy their flesh. God is merciful and he'll save their soul, but only after they've been ripped to shreds by the God of this world. In verse 13 and 15, God warns Israel one last time. You better listen carefully to me, Israel. I will destroy your phony hypocritical religion. I'll cut the horns right off your altar. These horns that symbolize strength and power where the blood is supposed to be tapped, I'll have, I'll cut them off. You'll have no way to contact me. And then I'll go and destroy your bank account. I'll go to your vacation house on the, on the Lake Lanier. I'll burn it to the ground. I'll strip your 401k from out under you and none of your wealth, your police force, your military, your civil institutions will not save you. From my coming wrath. All that will be left of you is a bloody emblem of the thing you loved more than me and the people I gave you to love. It's harrowing stuff, isn't it? And reading God's case against ancient Israel, folks, I got to admit, I, I can't help but have shivers run down my spine because all the stuff he talks about here seems like a reflection of the modern American church. We love our flashy uh, buildings. We love our our comfortable furniture. And we despise God and people. Christians, my hope is like Amos for us, and myself included. Don't think I'm not preaching to Caleb tonight either. Let's not lie to ourselves. Our money, our houses, our civil society, all the things that could be a blessing to us will become a curse 
if we're not obedient to the Lord. They won't protect us from God's chastisement. They'll be witnesses against why, for why we're being chastised. And if you think this is just Old Testament stuff, we need to read Revelation 3 again, where Jesus rebukes churches. He's not going to Israel. He goes to Laodicea. And he says, for you say this, church, I'm rich. I've become wealthy. I need nothing. You don't realize that you're wretched and pitiful and poor and blind and naked. That's what Jesus thinks about our money and our programs and our stuff. I advise you to buy gold from me that will be refined in the fire so that you may be rich. White clothes for me so that you may be dressed and your shameful nakedness not exposed. An ointment for me to spread on your eyes so that you may see. In other words, don't go, uh, don't be looking to buy uh, clothes and stuff from the world. Come to Jesus for what you need. He'll give you what you need. He'll clothe you in your selfish nakedness. He'll he'll purify the money that you so love more than one another. Because he says this ultimately. As many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. See, God loves Israel. As sorry as they are, he loves churches as miserable and as selfish and as nasty and as unwelcoming as we can be. He loves us, not because we're good, but because Jesus was good for us. But be zealous and repent. God alone knows our hearts and our works. And I suspect if we're honest with ourselves, we see a lot of our attitude overlap with Israel's attitude. But the good news is, if we do not harden our hearts and come before the Lord and repent, even seven times 70, if we are serial repenters, where every day we have to apologize for the same sins, he is swift to forgive. God wants to forgive us for the ways in which we've been selfish and apathetic towards one another. He wants to do that. See, we're preaching through this right now and gentle and lowly at the same time because they're two sides of the same coin. God hates idolatry and injustice, but he loves sinners and sufferers. He wants to be good to us. Folks, don't harden your heart. Don't ignore this stuff. God will help you. He will strengthen us. He'll forgive us for the kind of sinful ways that we treat money and stuff and people. He'll do that, and he'll help us to be a blessing to them in the future. But the worst thing we can possibly do is say, this is not for me. I'm going to push this aside. Listen carefully to these words. And again, know this. We are never justified because of what we believe or what we do. We're justified because Jesus is the just God and the justifier of the ungodly. If we'd admit to being ungodly, how free we would feel when he says, I love you and you're forgiven. Let's pray. Father, help us to take to heart these difficult words. Help us to not be 
overly concerned with things in the world, but to be primarily concerned with loving you, a God who loves us so generously, and to, and to loving other people, helping other, other people as you love to help people. Help us to love you and others, Father, so that even when the world looks at us and they see all of our sins and foibles, they can still give glory to you for what you're doing through us. Protect us, Lord, from the love of money, from the love of power, from the love of of all the things that distract us from being close to you. We thank you that you're swift to forgive, that your desire is for mercy. Help us to take this seriously so that we can have joy. And as the, as the psalmist says, that we can have pleasures at your right hand forevermore. For it's in Jesus' name, who first loved us while we were yet his enemies and called us into this new kingdom. It's in his name alone we ask and pray all these things. Amen.